Is there more to us than our physical bodies? Do we have a spirit? Today on Fordham Conversations, Bill Jaworski, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University, talks about reconciling the physical world with the spiritual world. Tell me a little bit about your main areas of study, what you're interested in. Sure. So um, I specialize in philosophy of mind and metaphysics. And um, uh, philosophy of mind concerns mind-body problems. And uh, mind-body problems are problems understanding how mental states, uh, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, uh, intentions, and the like, are related to physical states, such as states of the nervous system, states of the human brain. Uh, And there are a number of problems that arise when we try to understand how our thoughts and our feelings are related to those states. Uh, Those philosophical problems that obstruct our ability to understand that are called mind-body problems. And... Philosophy of mind is concerned with trying to resolve those problems, and oftentimes you need to um, bring in the resources of other philosophical disciplines such as metaphysics, philosophy of language, epistemology, and so on to do that. Mm -hmm. So does your work intersect with the sciences like biology or psychology? Uh, To some extent, yes. Uh, There are a number of uh, different theories out there, competing theories, and those uh, competing theories, they have different implications when it comes to Uh, biology, when it comes to theology, when it comes to psychology, and so on. Moreover, when you're a philosopher of mind specifically, you have to know something about the psychology and something about the neuroscience as just a a, a ground-level competence. You can't be ignorant of developments in the sciences and and be a competent philosopher these days. Uh, It used to be the case that you might be able to do that. Armchair philosophy used to be the thing, Um, but it's no longer the case. You have to do empirically informed philosophy these days to be respectable. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell me about your lecture series that you did. You did that um, last month? Uh, It's run since October, yes. So what got you interested in in trying to sort of reconcile the spiritual with the physical? A lot of people are under the impression that mainline um, monotheistic religions like Judaism and Christianity are committed to the idea that we're essentially um, spirits or souls that are only temporarily uh, inhabiting these human bodies. And that when these bodies die, we're going to float away and end up going to heaven or hell or purgatory or some sort of destination like that. But in fact, neither Judaism nor Christianity is is committed to this. And there are many theologians and scripture scholars who will tell you that this picture is actually a, a, a real distortion of Jewish and Christian belief. That the real picture is one that takes us to be essentially bodily beings. And this uh, this bodily view is actually what uh, motivates the idea of resurrection. So we need a bodily resurrection, uh, according to these these religious views, because we are bodies. We're these human organisms. Now, when you say this to people, they immediately have difficulty understanding the idea because they just don't have any alternative way of, of thinking about the Jewish or Christian endgame than, say, what they were taught as very young children uh, by people who maybe themselves didn't know any better or by images of the afterlife that they see in in movies. 
But again, there are plenty of scholars who will tell you that what you find in the Jewish and Christian scriptures is actually very different. So I'll give you just one example. The, uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he tells us that what we find in the letters of Paul in the book of Revelation is this process whereby God seeks to transform the entire physical universe. First by becoming a part of that universe in the person of the, the Christ, and then by dying, rising again, and establishing a community, the church, whose job is to contribute, if even in a small way, to this ongoing transformation of the physical universe, the transformation that God himself began. But quite aside from that, my approach to these issues doesn't come out of the theology or the scripture scholarship, but philosophy. And there are uh, a lot of philosophical reasons to think that we can't be the kinds of disembodied beings that many people take us to be. Now, of course, when people hear the idea that we're just bodies, they think of what we would typically call a, a materialist or a, a physicalist view. And that's a view that has no room for spirituality. So those views, the, the materialist or physicalist views, they claim that um, not merely are we just made out of physical materials, but that because we're made out of physical materials, we can't be spiritual beings. So what you have is this dichotomy between these two dominant views. One is that uh, the dualist view that I described a minute ago, which says that we've got to be these disembodied spirits that merely inhabit bodies temporarily. And the other view that says that we're these bodies, but bodies are nothing but collections of physical materials. And because of that, we can't be spiritual beings. So one tries to retain the spiritual by making it something non-physical. The other says there isn't anything non-physical, so there isn't any, anything spiritual. But what I think about those views is that, that both of them are, are wrong-headed. So to appreciate why I, I, I think that, um, you first have to look at what it is that people are, are thinking about when they think about spirituality. So I think what people really want to hold on to, and, and rightly so, is the idea that there's something about human nature that transcends our status as complex physical or biological systems. Something that, uh, that gives our lives a profound value and meaning that isn't eclipsed even by the, the, the vastness of, of space and time. So there's a sense that even though we're just these tiny specks in the vastness of, of space and tiny blinks in the vastness of cosmic time, that nevertheless our lives are deeply meaningful. They're deeply beautiful. And in fact, the most meaningful, most beautiful things in the entire cosmos, despite the fact that they're so small and, and so very brief. So this idea of human transcendence tends to push people in the direction of the dualistic view I described, the view that claims that we can be these disembodied spirits. And the reason is that um, a lot of people tend to assume that if human spirit is anything at all, it's got to be something non-physical. That there's no human transcendence unless we're these spooky non-physical beings. And importantly, this assumption is also what motivates physicalists to deny that there's human spirituality. If everything is physical and spirit can't be physical, then on the physical view, there, there can't be any spirit. So both of those views, the dualistic view and the physicalistic view that I've described, share a common assumption. They both assume that human spirit has to be something non-physical, if it's anything at all. But again, my sense is that that assumption is incorrect, and that it's got to be incorrect for philosophical reasons that are quite independent of the theological and scriptural reasons I mentioned earlier. And... I think that the key to, to seeing that that assumption is incorrect 
is to recover a philosophical view that was originally set out in the ancient world by Aristotle. And uh, it's a view that's been almost entirely ignored since the 17th century. Uh, it's a view called hylomorphism. And hylomorphism claims that structure or organization is this basic ontological and explanatory principle. It concerns both what things are and what they can do. And I can illustrate this with a simple example. I just call it the squashing example. So suppose that we were to take you and we were to put you in a, a bag. And we ensure that it's a very strong bag because we don't want to we don't want anything to leak out of it when we squash it with several tons of force. Now, there's clearly a difference in the contents of the bag pre-squashing and post-squashing. Pre-squashing, the contents of the bag included one human being. Post-squashing, they include none. Moreover, pre-squashing, the contents of the bag could think and could feel and could act. Post-squashing, they can't. Now, what's responsible for the difference pre-squashing and post-squashing? Well, it can't come down just to the physical materials themselves because those same physical materials are all still there. That's why we use the really strong bag. Nothing entered it, nothing left it. So the difference has to be something else, and the idea is the difference is the way those materials were structured or organized. They were arranged human-wise before squashing, and the squashing destroyed that human structure. That structure was responsible for there being a human, and that structure was responsible for the human's ability to think and to feel and to act. So structure is what philosophers call an ontological principle. It concerns what things are, and it's also an explanatory principle. It concerns what things can do. Now, structure is important for this whole spirituality issue because if there's structure, structure introduces differences uh, in the natural world. So you and I, we're not mere quantities of physical materials. We're quantities with a certain organization or structure, and the structures that we have confer on us new properties, new powers that are different from the powers of raw, unstructured materials. There's no question that we're physical beings on this view, so hylomorphism isn't like that dualist view that I described. But it's not a physicalist view either, because it says that there's something more to us than the physical materials. And that's something more, that organization or structure, makes room in the view for human transcendence, human spirituality. So my project as a philosopher has been to, um, to re-articulate this ancient view of structure using a modern vocabulary. And as I said, the, the view was largely ignored after the 17th century, and there have been a lot of developments in philosophy and science since then. So to present the view as a live option today, it's really necessary to reformulate those old ideas in newer terms and to defend the view against the most prominent contemporary alternatives. This is Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, and today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking to Professor Bill Jaworski. So I just want to ask you, why do you think that this view kind of fell to the side after the 1700s? Like, what happened that people stopped, um, were thinking about it that way? Right, no, that, that's, that's a great question. The, 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 uh, the story is actually, um, it's, a, it's a very complicated one, um, but I can, give you a, I can give you a brief answer, one that's ridiculously simplified to be sure, but that will nevertheless uh, give you a, a sense for it in, in, in outline. So uh, these days, we are very comfortable with the distinction between science and philosophy. What a lot of people fail to appreciate is that that distinction between science and philosophy uh, that's so familiar to us now wasn't really clear until the 19th century. So the very term scientist wasn't coined until 1838. Uh, and it was, it was coined uh, as an attempt to try to distinguish what 
scientists did from what philosophers did. Now, of course, clearly there were people who were doing science before 1838, so what did they call themselves and what were they called by others? The answer is that they were called natural philosophers. And the kind of thing that we now call science was called natural philosophy. But the thing is, natural philosophy didn't include just the science stuff. It also included what we would call philosophy proper, the philosophy of nature, the philosophy of the natural world. But at the time, again, especially early on in the scientific revolution, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, there wasn't this clear distinction between science and philosophy. So all of these things were just grouped under that one heading of natural philosophy. Now, the view that I've just described, this hylomorphic view, the view that endorses structure, that was uh, Aristotle's view. And Aristotle was enormously influential in Western culture, not just in philosophy, but also in, in science. And it was Aristotle's science that really dominated uh, Western culture for over a thousand years. The scientific revolution challenged that dominance. People like Galileo, uh, people like Descartes, Copernicus showed that just about every aspect of Aristotle's science was wrong. And so when they were targeting Aristotle's quote-unquote natural philosophy, their real target was Aristotle's science. But since they didn't distinguish between the science and the philosophy, they ended up jettisoning bombarding not just Aristotle's science, but the philosophy as well. So in place of Aristotle's science, they erected modern science. And of course, we're very, we're very happy about that. Uh, the very fact that we're able to use radio waves, uh, the fact that we're able to communicate in this way, that we're able to uh, cure diseases, that we know the cause of diseases, all these things and our understanding of the universe that's developed has all developed because of that the development of modern science. But in the place of Aristotle's philosophy, they put modern philosophy. And modern philosophy, our feelings about that are a little bit more ambivalent, precisely because modern philosophy generates certain kinds of philosophical problems, uh, mind-body problems, the problem of free will and determinism, the problem of trying to ground moral value in, in natural facts, problems reconciling spirituality with physicality. And the reason that modern philosophy generates these problems is that it's based on a worldview that rejects structure. So on the modern philosophical worldview, the physical universe is this vast, undifferentiated sea of matter and energy. It's not punctuated by these little pockets of order or structure the way it is on the, the hylomorphic Aristotelian worldview. And once you no longer have these little, uh, these little distinctive pockets of order or structure, the distinctive powers of certain physical things, such as you and I, become very difficult to explain. Why is it the case that you're able to think and to feel, whereas the tabletop isn't? At a fundamental physical level, after all, you're made out of exactly the same stuff. So why is it that one has miraculously this power to think and to feel and to be conscious, whereas the other doesn't? Now, in the hylomorphic view, it's quite clear. The, the answer is, well you have a certain organization or structure that confers on you distinctive powers, whereas the tabletop doesn't. But if you imagine a worldview that doesn't have organization or structure, suddenly there's nothing to explain why you would have those powers and the tabletop doesn't. And so the place of thought and of feeling, of choice, of free will, of human spirit, becomes problematic. It's unclear how that stuff fits into 
the physical universe, how it fits into the natural world. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, what happened uh, to that hylomorphic worldview during the scientific revolution and how we've come to be uh, in the current state that we are with our understanding of things. And it's not just in philosophy, by the way, that, that people uh, feel the implications of um, these dichotomies, mental versus physical and so on. Uh, you know, theologians and scientists, they struggle with these problems as well. Scientists often wonder how their work, their detailed work on uh, you know, studying the ins and outs of these physical materials fits into an overall coherent worldview that has room for something like spirituality. And theologians have, uh, the, you know, they, they oftentimes wonder about the same, the same kinds of things. And yet, the, that cultural inheritance we have, um, you know, it's, it's extremely influential. Think about how naturally we distinguish between, say, mental health and physical health, or between the mental aspects of athletic performance and the physical ones. Anyone who's a, a real athlete or anyone who's um, ever suffered from uh, psychiatric conditions that require medication will tell you that it's not that simple. It's not as simple as mental versus physical. And yet we really, for the most part, have no other vocabulary to talk about these things other than the vocabulary that we inherited from the 16th and 17th century philosophers. Hylomorphism brings in a different vocabulary that perhaps makes better sense of these things, but before we can start utilizing it, we first need to reformulate it. And we need to reformulate it in ways that enable hylomorphists to dialogue with the currently dominant views. So just personally, what made you decide to take on this project? I was a, a TA in an introductory philosophy course, and one of the units had to do with philosophy of mind. And in the process of teaching these things to, uh, to freshmen, and in some ways you always, you always learn a subject best when you have to teach it to people who don't know much about it, and I, I started beginning to understand the, the dynamics of um, mind-body debates. And I started to get this feeling that there was a way in which you could resolve these mind-body problems in ways that were more satisfactory than the dominant solutions if only you were to use a framework like Aristotle's to understand psychological capacities. Forgive me if this question doesn't make much sense, but I'm just curious. So is this project, is this a completely intellectual undertaking, or do you personally believe in this view, um, and, and that's why you're, you're sort of um, going forward with it? Does that make sense? Uh, sure. Um yeah, I mean, it, it's perfectly possible for a, for a scholar to uh, undertake a, a project in, you know, philosophical theology or something like this and not believe in God or mm -hmm. undertake a, a project in, um, in some sort of area of philosophy and not actually endorse the, the theses or, you know, study, uh, you know, a philosopher like Scotus and say, but I'm, I don't believe anything Scotus says. Uh, so I suppose that when I look at the, at the various views that are op out there and I, I look at the options and I, and I look at the arguments... Uh, I think that the arguments in favor of this hylomorphic view are pretty compelling. Um, I think that uh, it's difficult to understand the view once you've been trained philosophically in the way that, that, that most professional philosophers are. Uh, and so most of the time I don't think about whether I'm convinced of it. Most of the time, uh, I, I do just think about the mechanics of it and, and trying to make the view explicit in a way that other people, other professionals can understand. But when I, when I actually weigh the overall evidence for and against this stuff, um, 
the view ends up being pretty compelling. And then there are other things too. There are other reasons why why philosophers end up in, endorsing views. There, there, are, uh, you know, the view has a lot of theoretical virtues. So one virtue in a theory is that it's able to explain things, explanatory power, and uh, in particular, it resolves problems or puzzles that previously uh, seemed irresolvable. And once you take on the hylomorphic framework, you realize that it, it has that. It has that that explanatory power. It's it's it has the potential to um, to solve problems in a more satisfactory way than many of its competitors. The cost, of course, is you have to endorse this idea of organization or structure, which a lot of people, uh, uh, they find it difficult to make sense out of that because we've been, we've been stuck with a non-structure worldview since the 17th century. But there are ways of, of making that clear. So in short, to answer your question, yeah, when I, when I look at it on balance, uh, I find the case pretty compelling. On the other hand, the case is also one that is open to empirical falsification. If our, if our best empirical, if our best scientific descriptions of uh, human behavior, of, of living behavior, end up being reducible to or can be formulated in terms that don't appeal to organization or structure, then... Um, then we no longer have any reason to believe that the that the theory is true. So it's it's open to empirical falsification, and so there's always there's always that. So you can't you know just rest assured that that's got to be true. Um, when I look at the next best alternative, though, the next best alternative is physicalism, and um, if that does end up being the next best alternative, so much the worse for human spirituality. It turns out. So within your view, there there can be a, a spirit sort of, but without a god. Um, you know, actually, I've, I've not, uh, I've not thought too much about that particular issue. My, so, and, and the reason is that the, um, the, the most difficult view to make, uh, to work out is going to be one that assumes, uh, a God. Uh, it's a lot easier to square something like, um, you know, Buddhism, say, with physicalism than it is to square, monotheistic revealed religion with with that view so because of that uh my my main focus has always been on the difficult case the really hard case which is if you're going to understand human transcendence in terms of a relationship to a loving god how are you going to square that with the idea that we're physical beings so uh for me um that's what I've spent most of my time thinking about. But could the, could the view work out if you if you deny the existence of God? Well, sure. Uh, there's no reason why you couldn't endorse the existence of structure. In, in fact, the existence of structure of a hylomorphic sort ends up being, in, in some cases, compatible with physicalism. If you say the only st- that sure there are structures, but the only ones that exist are the ones that are postulated by physics, that that ends up being a physicalist view. What makes the hylomorphic view that I'm interested in um, uh, distinctive is that it claims that there are forms of organization or structure, patterns, dynamic structures, which are different from the ones that are described by physics. And if there are those kinds of things, then you have a place in that view for, for spirituality in the, in the natural world. So how is it that the, this Christian and Jewish view of the body, how, how did that come to transform into something more spiritual or as we think of theology? Yeah, you know that that's a that's a a, a good question. Um, it's um, 
you know, how is it that, uh, you know, if, when you look at these scholars like N.T. Wright and they, they, you know, look at the New Testament, and they're like, wow, you know, this is a, this is a deeply Jewish view here. It's a, it's a view that's really committed to us being um, bodily beings. How is it that so many people then think that we can be these disembodied spirits? And the, um, the history to that is, is long uh, and complicated. I actually don't know the whole story, and I'm not sure that anybody, you know, really does know the whole story. But a lot of it has to do with the influence of the philosopher Plato. So, um, so Plato, uh, on Plato's philosophy, I mean, this is, of course, ridiculously simplified, but for Plato, the, the only real things, the really real things, are, are these unchanging forms. And the physical things we see around us, which are subject to change, those are only um, degraded images of those really real forms. So by analogy, imagine that we surrounded you with a number of mirrors, mirrors that were, um, had, had dirty surfaces, those mirrors would then provide degraded images of you, the, you know, the, the physical you. And in the same way Plato thought that individual humans such as you and I and the person across the hall and so on, that we were like degraded images of the really real form of humanity. And this, this view that he had, this view of reality, what we in philosophy call a metaphysic, this was combined with a theory of knowledge. Because for Plato, the only things that we can really know are those unchanging forms. What, uh, what we perceive with the senses, these bodies that are around us, we really don't have true knowledge of them. We have a sort of degraded form of knowledge to accompany the degraded form of being that they represent. Now, if you, um, if you take that on, then the, then the big question is, well, how do I get to know these these forms, these unchanging forms. And for Plato, there was this very rigorous program of education, which involved several decades of mathematics, followed by several decades of philosophy. And, you know, you went on this journey to try to grasp the, the pure forms. It was a very uh, elitist kind of um, educational program. It's not, not one that, that most people would ever be able to accomplish. And, and Plato knew this. He thought that maybe at the end you'd just get, like, one good man and you made him king, the philosopher, fam- Plato's famous philosopher king. So that was, that was Plato's philosophy. Um, and one of the, the dominant ideas there is that in order to get real knowledge of things, you had to distance yourself from the physical universe. Now, this view has some pretty striking theological implications because the bodies around us, they're only degraded images of what we truly are, which is these non-physical beings. Moreover, real goodness, real beauty, real justice they could never exist in the physical world because only degraded images of these things can exist in the physical world. Now, if you think about what this means theologically, if God is really good, is really beautiful, is really just, then that means God could never exist in the physical universe. And moreover, it means that coming to know God would require distancing ourselves in some ways from physical things. And there were very extreme versions of this Platonic idea. Um, Gnostic religious sects, for instance, uh, were, were very much caught in the grips of this idea. But even if you weren't an extremist the ways that they were, it was still very influential, and there was still this idea that uh, if we really want to know God, if we really want to you know, um, uh, discover, realize our spiritual destiny, that involves distancing ourselves from this world of physicality. And... Um, that that's been enormously influential uh, for you know for millennia because clearly people people still um, operate with that conception. They probably don't know it's a Platonic conception, but that that's sort of uh, the origins of it. So we talked a little bit about this earlier, but 
I'm just wondering, do you find it hard to be a philosopher in a time when a lot of people are becoming more secular and sort of thinking about things mostly in terms of science rather than the more spiritual or other aspects? Um, I suppose since I've, I've grown up in this world, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't find it to be particularly alien uh, to, to the way I do things. Um, I think that uh, the academy itself, philosophy as a profession, is, is a very secular discipline. I think uh, you know, most, most working philosophers are either atheists or agnostics. Um, I mean, most of my friends are atheists or agnostics. Uh, it's not something that's, it's not something that I find particularly troublesome. And I mean, from from my standpoint, I'm I'm not sure that it should be something that uh, you know that that uh, you know, say, Jews or Christians ought ought to feel that way about it. Uh, anyway, I mean, if if you think about it, these are spiritual traditions in which they were sort of told at the get-go that it wasn't going to be easygoing, right? Um, I mean, the, the, the central symbol of Christianity is a cross, an instrument of torture. Nobody said it was going to be a fun ride. Uh, so I, I think that um, when you sort of look at it in context, I'm not sure that, um, that, that the devout Jew or Christian ought to feel uh, a profound sense of alienation. What they... What they would feel, I would think, is a sense of challenge, a sense of they've got a job to do, and um, and if if you're an academic, if you're a you know working scientist, a working theologian, a working philosopher, or something like that, then then I assume that you would you would undertake the challenge in in that particular domain. Thanks to Professor Jaworski for talking to me this morning. His book, Philosophy of Mind, is now available. You can catch Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast in the iTunes store. You can also like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned, George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.